We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. I told you you'd love it. The Tijuana Brass? Bingo! Johnny Olsen, tell him what he's won. Oh, that's a great choice by Jim Margallis. Jim Margallis of Sox Machine joins us on the Alpamonte Ford Hotline, Alpamonte Ford in Melrose Park. Jim, we love <laughs> your Waka music. What a blasto from the pasto. Herb Alpert, the Tijuana Brass. Herb Alpert was the A in A&M Records. Uh-huh. Fantastically Success. Is this the album that has on the cover a naked woman covered in either whipped cream, whipped cream. or shaving cream? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, I, not mm. sure. I think this one has, I thought this had the taxi on it. I thought it was very literal, but I could be wrong. I, either way, I'm glad to have envisioned <laughs> the other one as well. I, yeah, I had two choices. I, I gave him two choices, and I figured what, that would tell me what you think of me. I had uh, Papa Don't Take No Mess from James Brown, and I had Tijuana Taxi, and I see what you chose. Yes, well, we, I, we're big fans of this. We want to go on the dating game right now. Jim Margallis of Sox Machine, and uh, he wrote this week, the lead says, good news, the White Sox broke new ground in a free agent pursuit. Bad news, it can't even register as a moral victory. And while I disagreed with that, Jim, I, I loved your points your nuanced take on something and it answered a big question for me. So share with the class what your what you wrote, why you wrote it, and where you wanted to go, and then we'll discuss. Okay, it was about Zach Wheeler and the White Sox uh, reportedly going all out for his services uh, and, and not landing him. So they went for five, and I think the final deal was five years, $125 million. Ended up signing with the Phillies for five years and $118 million, and we've never seen the White Sox do this. We've never seen them be this interested for this long, and, and, and money is, uh, is not the issue. But uh, it does say something, I think, about the White Sox and the choices they made before this, that it wasn't good enough to get the job done. So uh, when it comes to this, the, you know, this, this massive contract, and Yasmani Grandal did break new ground for the White Sox in terms of free agent contracts, uh, you know, they, they can't quite get the nine-figure deal done either to their liking or even if, it, you know, if they, they are comfortable spending the money, they just can't quite get the guy to land there. We're talking with Jim Margallis of Sox Machine here on The Score. Rosenblum and Spiegel with you. You know, it's so so, but they went for it. You know, like there was no, yeah. what, what I liked about this, Jim, and I think you did, but is the, there is no $50 million less, but actually you could make more with our incentives. Yeah. Which meant yep. they learned. Yes. They learned from last and, year's mistakes. And, and there is no, um, oh, hey, it's a few million dollars less, but we've got your cousin. You know, there's there was none of that. Friends and family plan? It was, it was yeah. we want you. Here's here's the very top of the market offer. That's that's good. That's a good sign. No, I, I agree with that. And, and the point I made at the end is just like, this is new ground. This is novel that, you know, I, I waited for the catch. I waited for they offered him most money, but or they offered him, you know, <laughs> the, the highest annual value, but not enough years right. or more years. But for low, yeah, I was waiting for some kind of catch. Like, as you mentioned, uh, all he has to do is basically stay healthy uh, uh, catch. They put on the Manny Machado deal, but no, there was no catch. It's just a matter with the White Sox. Uh, and we've seen them before in, in terms of uh, last year with the Manny Machado pursuit. That was the only idea they had. They had no other idea to spend the money. They, they didn't even look at Bryce Harper seriously when he would be a very good fit for them in right field going forward. Um, you know, we just have to see uh, before I, I feel great about lauding the White Sox for this. I think it's a positive step. But before I feel great about like saying that uh, it's a new era, I would like to see them have a plan B for it. And I'm not saying they won't. I just, you know, at this point, given uh, you know, seven losing seasons and two attempts at rebuilding and Rick Hahn's very poor record with three agent signings hmm. that uh, I just don't feel like giving them the benefit of the doubt yet. Uh, I, I think it's a good sign, but just, yeah, I, I feel like I've been burned before and, and with the White Sox and writing about them for as long as I've had, 
uh, I, it feels like there's never punishment for betting the under on them. Yes. <laughs> like I keep, I, I've never been wrong in being too pessimistic. Whenever I've been wrong, <laughs> it's for feeling like things are going to be too good. I think, Jim, I think you're right. And I think because the starting point is, okay, who are the free agent pitchers available? All right. Well, not Garrett Cole, not Strasburg. And then we start counting for the Sox. I think that's kind of the way you've been conditioned, and that's kind of the way they've they've actually adopted that stance, haven't they? Yeah, and, and uh, you know, I thought Cole made a lot of sense, even though you know it's a preposterous amount of money, especially relative to what the White Sox have ever spent. I think if you do a raised earth rebuild like the White Sox have done, and, and you're just completely resetting the payroll that theoretically makes a fit like Cole possible. And that's kind of the reason why you do reset the payroll like that. But, you know, they just didn't come up. And, uh, you know, it's it's worth talking about and not worth talking about at the same time. Uh, but, yeah, I think when you get to the second tier and you shop for this highest of the second tier and money isn't good enough to get the job done, and then you just do have to worry about uh, a, a sliding scale to where you just feel like you're, you know, it, it's not much before you're settling. And I think there are a couple of pitching targets like Keiko is a possibility. Uh, Ryu is a possibility. Uh, I think the White Sox uh, rotation can use a lefty, especially against left-handed hitters. Last year, left-handed hitters did really well at guaranteed right field, especially for power. So having a lefty started to neutralize that would be good. But I think after Keiko, after Ryu, it, it starts getting a little bit uh, like crossing fingers or, yes. or, or going for bargains on the free agent market. You might have to think about trades, and the White Sox don't have a whole lot to trade. I think the market was their, – their market of targets, their batch of targets was already fairly isolated, but now even more so. I do not think they're going to get in on Kohler Strasburg. I think they will at some point also grab a guy on a like a one-year prove-it deal, be it Homer Bailey or Rick Porcello, somebody they decide they want to fly with who they could flip if he actually turns out good or, or reinvest in, something like that for the back end. But on the front end, I think they've now put themselves in a place where they have to get one of the three lefties. Would Bumgarner, Keuchel, or Ryu? Um, and because those are really the only three guys left in the non-wheeler universe that makes mm-hmm. sense for for front of the rotation. Um, I know what my ranking of those three would be in terms of desirability. What is yours? I would go with uh, Ryu, uh, Keuchel, and Bumgarner in that order. What's yeah. yours? Uh, Ryu and then Bumgarner, and then Keuchel. Although I wouldn't be severely disappointed if they got Keuchel. I just think he has the lowest ceiling of the three. I think it's possible that Bumgarner could be great for a year or two. I think it's probable that Ryu could be great for a year or two. I think Keuchel will be very solid for a long time. And I was in favor of that because I wanted Keuchel going back to last June when Kimbrell and Keuchel suddenly – Sure. And the Mm -hmm. the Indians were fading and the Sox were at a point where if he's that guy they sign, if they jump out and make that move then, which they were going to make this offseason anyways, but they moved the clock up six months, he was the guy I would have gone after the way Atlanta went after him because of that because he's solid – He's professional. Yeah. He's got postseason experience. He's somebody that the young pitchers would easily follow. He's, he also has a whip over 1.3 in each of the last well, two you years. Well, you have Dr. Don there. Don Cooper's going to solve everything. I forgot he was still there. <laughs> yeah, I think with Bumgarner, he's so uh, – I guess his pitching profile is pretty extreme. Uh, you know, gives a lot of fly balls and – uh, you know, he's pitched in San Francisco forever, so that's a ballpark that can afford it. And with somebody like him, I just – I'm not sure if he's somebody who's tailored his style to fit that ballpark, and once he moves somewhere else, he can adjust it. You know, it might be somebody who, like, give him a lot of fly balls, who cares? I'll fix it when I need to. Mm-hmm. And it's very possible. There are guys who have done that. It's all, it comes up every single year with Coors Field's hitters, and it doesn't really seem to be an issue after, you know, that player leaves. And I think there could be some kind of effect with Bumgarner, the same thing, where, you know, he just – uh, the circumstances have to force him to change, but he's good enough, he's resourceful enough, has enough stuff to deal with it. But not having seen that, I think I just feel a little bit more comfortable with the other two. Ryu, I'm, I'm sorry, so Rosie, but like Ryu is so interesting to me as a pitcher. Um, and I know he has had health problems, but they haven't been arm problems since 2016. Um, do, do the injuries scare you? But why do you, why do you have Ryu at the top of, of these three for you? Well, partially is the effectiveness, partially uh, is the, the, the White Sox, when it comes to you know, the kind of injuries he's had, 
Uh, even though the White Sox have lost some effectiveness with uh, you know, with keeping pitchers healthy, a lot of it's been a velocity issue, uh, and then guys who throw really hard and not not holding up, and and maybe you know, Ryu not being somebody who lights up the radar gun is not somebody susceptible to those kind of injuries. And also, you know, partially it's you know, an off the field thing or an intangible thing. Is I remember. Uh, when I went out to uh, South Korea a, a number of years ago, uh, I was surprised by how many Cincinnati red shirts I saw out there, reds hats, red shirts. And it was all because Shinsu Chu was the in the reds outfield at the time. And you never see reds gear anywhere outside of Cincinnati and maybe, you know, some locations, but uh, it was all over the place there. And it was just because it was one of their guys playing for the reds. And I, I don't think it would hurt to have a whole country following what the White Sox are doing. So I think if you know, I wouldn't, use that as a driving factor to sign a guy. But if I like the talent and I think he's fairly equivalent, it's something I kind of keep in mind is opening up a whole you know, new market to uh, a place that has basically, you know, not had a reason to pay attention to the White Sox. Talk with Jim Margallis. You can read him at SoxMachine.com. Recommend that you read him. He wrote about the White Sox failure to land Zach Wheeler. And there, there is some upside to that. So let's move along here because we have a, I have a, a tweet from Steve Stone. It's prediction time going into the winter meetings. Some will disagree, but someone's got to do it in no order or time frame. Cole to the Angels, Rendon to the Nationals, Strasburg to the Yankees, Dallas Keuchel to the Sox. The Sox will make more moves. Let's see what happens. So let's talk about the more moves, Jim. What should mm-hmm. they be? What should they be? Well, basically, they have right field and DH are the two glaring holes. There is a, I guess, a temporary gap right now in the infield. But if you believe Nick Madrigal can come up right away, and well, I mean, you know, if you ignore the service time thing or whatever, just you know, you set it aside. If you can think he's going to be a regular, uh, average player by say like mid June, then you stick with Madrigal. Um, but you know that leaves otherwise, you know, right field and DH, and they can use the bats. And yeah, I saw some Marcelo Zuna rumors bubbling up. Uh, some word from the Dominican that he was going to sign with the White Sox. Hard to tell. You know, some sometimes those reports are accurate, but you have really no way of knowing until they're actually verified. Just because we're not familiar with the names of the, the journalists, for the most part, I think this is Frank Castillo, and I had to make sure that he wasn't the Cubs pitcher in the 1990s. Yeah, that's what I thought uh, too. Yeah, at first I was confused with Tony Castillo, but yeah, uh, uh-huh. it was neither of those guys. Um, but yeah, just it's something I, I filed away or just kind of you know keep that in the back of mind, but. You know, he would be somebody who theoretically fits the bill. He's not a good defensive outfielder, and that's one thing that hurts the White Sox is they could use somebody who you know can actually cover some ground to give either Adam Engel or Luis Roberts some help in center because Eloy is not good in left, and if you have a zoom in right, that's really bad outfield. But they need bats more than they need gloves at this point, and I think if you can – uh, yeah, I think Eloy will improve a little bit. I think in September it was a lot better than he was in May, so I think he's not going to be the train wreck he was last year. But – uh, the bat is good enough, and, and also Frank Menachino being the new hitting coach yeah. and working with the Marlins and working with uh, Ozuna during his best season, you know, that might be one reason to either think that uh, you know, uh, Menachino knows what makes him tick or maybe just knows that uh, you know, whatever his numbers were in St. Louis and being a little bit uh, uh, less than overpowering, you know, maybe they think that uh, – you know, that hair is still there. I like Medicino. Um And so, and I would, you know, I, I enjoy the idea of uh, of him saying, oh, I know what makes this guy tick, and, and that's all good. I got to say, though, and for those who don't know, the, the Ozuna thing was tweeted about by a guy named Frank Castillo, a Dominican, <laughs> Dominican baseball reporter, um, this morning. And then our Bruce Levine reached out to a White Sox source, and Bruce said, is this true? And the White Sox source said, no. So yeah. I, I I don't know I don't know where we stand I I I think it would create defensive chaos though he's he's mm-hmm. he's played what I think sixty games total in right field um, maybe even less than that and recently I mean he went from a guy who you could trust in center to now a guy you play in left and pray and you already have one of those you know and I don't know yeah. and watch him and the. Watch that clip of him going back to the yeah, fence. For yeah, the- well, for sure. But also, <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I get why Abreu is here, and I'm cool with it. But also with Grandal and McCann and Zach Collins and eventually Andrew Vaughn, it's like I don't know, I don't know where you can, how you can survive with, with, with both Ozuna and Eloy as corner outfielders. Yeah, that's why I think Jock Peterson uh, has always made a lot of sense for the White Sox going back to last year, maybe even the year before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, just low-level rumors, and, and the talent makes sense. The White Sox need left-handed bats. They need 
specifically a left-handed bat that can hit for power and, and draw a walk. Um, you know, even if he's vulnerable against uh, left-handed pitching, the White Sox have righties. He's a good defensive outfielder. So the talent has always made sense. And so I think that's the reason they keep coming back to it. But given that he's in the last year of control, if the price has come down low enough to where the White Sox don't hurt their own depth by dealing for him, then I could see it happening. It's just, it's always been uh, a really good fit. And uh, I I think when you're looking for somebody who helps the center fielder rather than uh, makes the center fielder's life hell, I think uh, Peterson would be the way I would go, but I'm, Hard to tell what his price is just because uh, the Dodgers, we've seen them when they don't want to deal somebody, they don't, and they seem to be rewarded for all the depth that they hoard. So I'm not sure. uh, They're a hard team to read. Mm -hmm. I have one question before we let you go, Jim, for both you and Speegs. Intuitively, it makes sense to me. I have no idea if it's actual value in baseball decisions because money is so – it's priorities one through five. But if you're a pitcher, we talked about – the fielding decisions and the the lead gloves on this team. And this is a team that just had a gold glove second baseman get essentially waved. See it. We don't want you anymore, right? If you're mm-hmm. a pitcher, wouldn't you take that into consideration? Not only in the American League, but don't you, you look at this team going, what value do they actually place on defense if they're worried if they, they they're going after these guys with lead gloves and let go a gold glove fielder? Have you ever seen that, um, any quotes in connection with that? Intuitively, it makes sense. I wouldn't want to pitch behind that. I'd want to pitch in a play. Dodger Stadium is a great place to pitch. Plus, they make sure they catch the ball a lot of the time. Not Maybe not always, but that's, that's the way I would look at it. I have no idea that has any bearing on pitching decisions for the White Sox here and now. I've only seen it like yeah, I, I guess I've only seen the pitcher praise the defense or as a re, like maybe like an after the fact reasoning. Mm-hmm. Uh, never like at the time he signs, but you know as the deal as like a career is progressing, you know they, the you kind of the, the pitcher credits the defense like a running back will credit his offensive line. Right. Uh, well, I think with some guys, you know, if they strike out enough hitters. Uh, they might not care about the defense all that much, or they might have the ego saying, like, I, I'll take care of myself. It's my job to pitch around it. I think that the White Sox, you know, the signing Grandal helps. I think having a guy who can actually catch strikes and, and not uh, either pull pitches out of the zone yes. or save strikes, or, <laughs> that, that helps a ton. The White Sox lost that in Tyler Flowers, and they've been struggling to get it back ever since. So he helps. I think, you know, watching Nick Madrigal play at Charlotte and Birmingham and, you know, watching him on the way up, He's got a lot of Yomer Sanchez in him just in terms of how quickly he gets rid of the ball. He doesn't have the arm strength, so he's developed the really quick exchange, the hands, uh, the ability to make throws at odd angles to compensate for the lack of arm strength. And I think that was the, the best thing about Yomer is that, you know, his arm strength is okay, but uh, I think as he you play the left side of the infield, you know, getting, uh, you know, coming up the system, that he learned how to get rid of the ball really quickly. I think Madrigal's got that. I think, you know, give him, give him a year to get used to the speed of the game and positioning. I think he can be maybe not as good as Yolmer, but close. So I think you look around the infield, Anderson's going to be hot and cold. Moncada's all right. Uh, Brave's liability, but that's, you know, infield's fine. It's just the outfield. If they could, you know, if they could get a corner guy like Peterson to uh, make up for uh, uh, the ground that they uh, did not cover with Palka, say, out there. Uh, that would be, I think, enough of a mix of good gloves and bad gloves to where the defense, you, you look at it as a pitcher and say, oh, that's neutral. You know, you know, Eloy might not hit, but he's got a, a bat, and I like having his bat in the lineup, so put him out there all the time. I'll take that. So that, that's where I, I assess it. So I'm not sure about uh, the map, but that's how I see it. I, I, in, I, in response to the question, I would say that pitchers are their own CEOs. Every pitcher is their own CEO, especially the big money, you know, the, the possible free agents and starting pitcher. You're responsible for figuring out which mechanics work best for you, which methodology works best for you. And the smart ones do look at a pitching infrastructure of an organization when they're deciding. Is there, are they analytically up to speed? Just about everybody is now. Do they have good pitch framers? Do they value pitch framing? Am I going to get help, like, like Jim is mentioning with Grandal and with the defense? So it depends on, on the human. And I think some humans absolutely would look into that kind of thing. And do they have guys banging on buckets when a changeup is coming? <laughs> Always helpful. <laughs> yes, it is. All right, Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it and love your walk-up music. Thanks. Oh, <laughs> thanks for asking and thanks for playing it. <laughs> All right, that's Jim Margalis, SoxMachine.com. Go there and read them and think of the Tijuana. Isn't that great? Yeah. Tijuana Taxi. Outstanding. Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Rats. Uh, the winter meetings right, begin on Monday, and we are... Tomorrow. Is it tomorrow or Monday? Monday. Monday. I, th- I think it's Monday. 
Um, but it, it, either way, we are in a moment right here. We are in a moment of perfect circumstances if you are Garrett Cole and Steven Strasburg. And you'll explain why after this. Chicago Sports Radio, 670, the score. What you outlined was sort of two different types of reward. One, where it's that upside potential ace, potential anchor for your rotation. And, and the other is, uh, you know, safer but stable and is going to, you know, eat up some innings and lighten the load on these other guys, on the Giolitos and Ceases and Kopecks and, and uh, the others that we have coming in the organization, which, which is a real benefit. Uh, ideally, you find that sweet spot in terms of risk, reward, and cost that uh, allows you to get a guy who not only sort of helps stabilize and lessen the load on, on the rest of the rotation, but still has that uh, ace-type potential. Those are not so easy to find, especially given the risk involved in some veteran pitchers. But I think if you can thread that needle, then, then you've accomplished something. Okay, that was Rick Hahn, White Sox GM. He was on today inside the clubhouse with yes, Matt Spiegel, Bruce Levine. Winter meetings, free agency. So explain, Lucy. Well, what, is that, what does all of that mean to you? Well, Han, Han was talking about the you know different types of pitching targets in terms of free agents. I think he was comparing. Actually, I was hoping he was comparing since it was my question. <laughs> Hyunjin Ryu, who might be a two, three year deal, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe a four year deal, but probably a three year deal. Um, at a higher level than Dallas Keuchel, who might want a five-year deal for a five-year deal, that kind of thing. But, like, going for a higher-end front-of-the-rotation sort of starter versus an innings eater. And if I were the White Sox, I would go after Hyunjin Ryu at this point. I would you, target him. You liked him. You were talking about that yep. this morning. So you like the the... The fact that whatever injuries there were, they weren't arm, and you like right. the upside. Not since 2016, anyway, they weren't okay. arm. So why him, the, just simply the ceiling? Uh, yeah, I mean, I or, think he, 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 uh, he, gets a, he gets a ton of ground balls, a lot of weak contact. He has a number of different ways to get you out, stuff-wise. Um, and he was phenomenal, this past season, yeah. it, he was he was one of the best pitchers in baseball for like a two and a half month period. Ended up second in the uh, in, in the Cy Young voting. Yeah. I I just think he's really really smart, and and he's going to be able to get in a, a few different ways for a long time. If he stays healthy, you've got something wonderful. And again, the health issues have not been arm related. They've been a lot of groin issues and some hamstring and stuff like that. So maybe they can help him with that. He's also he also had tremendous success with Yasmani Grandal in LA um when they were together and um and is a beloved teammate by anybody who's ever played with him. The Grandal signing was really important for a lot of reasons, getting out in front, paying a a big amount of money and making it attractive for pitchers to come. If if there was anything to be said for whatever they think of their their defense, they're throwing out there in the name of bats. The idea of Grandal being able to make you better, I think, yep. was a real. That was an important move. We'll see who, if anybody, it attracts because I think that was a. I really like the move for that reason. I. I have a question for you because I don't I'm as much as I know about analytics is not an exceptional amount. I will defer to you on all cases. Where does pitching a Dodger stadium not get reflected because it's it's in certain analytics, certain metrics, because it is whatever park adjusted stuff there is. Mm -hmm. That is a place that at night Drysdale and Koufax were even better and it's felt unfair and Kershaw was even better, and it feels unfair that he should have the advantage of some of the, the heavy night air at Dodger Stadium. So where does that park rank? What part made Rue that much scarier uh, better? Yeah, uh, the worst is Coors Field by a dramatic amount. Dodger Stadium is seventh best. To, um, to pitch in. Yeah, seventh best to pitch in. Mm-hmm. Um, Madison Bumgarner's home of Oracle Park is number one. Is it really? 
Yeah. Uh, that the, makes it scary to go after him. Well, especially because he had an ERA over five on the road mm-hmm. last year. Yeah. Did Bumgarner. That was, that was the opposite of Chatwood, right? Uh-huh. Chatwood had an ERA in, Co- in Coors Field, and then he was real low on the road. That's what we're getting. Um, no, you're not. You're getting a crappy pitcher. Yeah, and then, you know, um, the Gary, uh, guaranteed rate, is uh, is just a few behind Dodger Stadium. It's not as not as bad as, he, as it usually is. Um, we, all re- we all we all remember those Sunday day games when it's it's a bear score, you know, twenty one twenty that kind of stuff. That's what we remember. But, yeah. Um, but I, I didn't know. I know the Dodger Stadium had a history of being such a good pitcher's park. Maybe and not, still does. Maybe not Petco. You know the way Petco was so legendary. I that Oracle right, Pet, the stuff about is, Oracle surprises me. Yeah, Oracle number one, Yankee Stadium number two. When they built the new one, they really screwed the pooch in favor ah. of, of the pitchers. Uh, Petco, number three, uh, Oakland Coliseum, number four, and City Field, number five. Oakland is such a, what an awful place to see a game. Terrible. I'm sorry, that's just, that's, that's a, that's a lockup. That's yeah. a, that's a sentence, not an opportunity. And all that it's foul territory. So bad. This hour of uh, the score is brought to you by Santana Energy Services. Visit SantanaEnergyServices.com. Got some black magic energy services. And the bottom of the hour is brought to you by the Chicago Wolves. One week from tonight, join the Chicago Wolves for Star Wars Night at All-State Arena. Ticket packages, ticket packages include a laser saber. Visit ChicagoWolves.com or call 1-800-THE-WOLVES. All right, so I mentioned that the circumstances are perfect for the bidding war if you are Garrett Cole or Steven Strasburg. Mm-hmm. The Yankees are in, and loudly so, on Garrett Cole. Exactly. You look around the table, and you don't want the fish as much as you want the the. The biggest chip count you can. We're ready to give him a record deal. <laughs> oh, all right. That's interesting. That's good for me. What else? The Angels and Artie Moreno are in. Mm-hmm. He's feeling the pressure of the L.A. market, of having Mike Trout, and of just acquiring Joe Madden. So the Angels and all their money and market size are in. And the Dodgers... The Dodgers. The Dodgers this offseason have the most payroll flexibility they have had since Andrew Friedman has been there. Why is that? Number one, this is the offseason for them to push. They've been under the tax now for two years, the competitive balance tax, which acts as the de facto salary cap. They've now been under, under it for two years, so they are back to the minimum penalty on the luxury tax. And in terms of... Money that they have uh, guaranteed to people who are no longer a playing of consequence. It is the best situation that they have been in since Andrew Freeman has been there. So think about all these past years when you heard, you know, the Dodgers might just load up. They're going to get Bryce Harper. They didn't. Oh, the Dodgers might just load up. They're going to get Giancarlo Stanton. Yeah. They didn't. They waited. Now, not only do they have the flexibility, they haven't won yet. They haven't won yet. And if there's a time to be extra aggressive. If there's an urgency attached to all that money. There it is. Yep. And they also, by the way, still have tremendous minor league resources. If they want to make a deal for Mookie Betts or Francisco Lindor, big rumors on them being the team that Francisco Lindor is going to go to from Cleveland. If they want to make a move on, on those guys, they could just purely through trade. But they also could spend the bejesus out of some dollars and beat out the Yankees or the Angels for Garrett Cole. Garrett Cole is going to get a record deal. And Strasburg, I think, has delayed re-signing with the Nationals because this market is so rife for those two guys specifically. And yet the Dodgers haven't jumped out and done anything that we know of. I mean, they certainly haven't done anything official. We don't know what they're talking no. the discussion has been, what the... The, the Yankees announce everything. They just barge right into the room. I think the Dodgers are going to get Rendon. I think the Dodgers are going to get Rendon, and they might get Cole, too. But, I mean, they, they could do that kind of thing. You know what they have to do is they have to stop believing in Clayton Kershaw. That, that is going to be an Achilles heel for them until they, they realize who they actually have. They need to stop treating him like, like he's like old, he's, old right. Clayton Kershaw. Correct. He's not that guy. No. That's just that was just some bad decisions. That's I he he was quite the soldier. He was a magnificent pitcher of of his era for five, six, seven uh-huh. years, whatever it spanned. Right. But he's not that guy. No, Walker Bueller's your ace. And if you bring back Hyunjin Ryu, he's your two. 
mm-hmm. and Kershaw's your three. It's a damn good three. But you need an, but you need somebody else on top of those guys. Yeah. So wow. how scary would that be? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so if the Dodgers could make a deal for Betts or Lindor or Brian. Can you imagine Lindor there? I know they've got Corey Seager, but they could always include include Corey Seager in 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 the Lindor trade. They're like, go ahead, take him. We'll take your Lindor instead. It's an amazing thing to be in that. And then we're dealing with the Cubs who seemingly should yeah. have a lot of money, right? Shouldn't they? Yeah. Do they? Let me ask you. Let me ask you this. But by, by, by the way, I um yeah. Uh, just yeah. real quick, Peter Gammons. It's pretty funny. Uh, Peter Gammons tweeted something this morning, and Peter is it's a very it's a very good dude. But Peter's also sometimes he Your lets guitar playing buddy. Yeah, it's true. But sometimes he says stuff um, without meaning to say stuff, trying to be super clever, and he actually just flat out says it. John Heyman tweeted this: Here, Yankees' total focus right now is on Garrett Cole. Philly, Texas, Dodgers, Angels are other teams known to be in, but Yankees don't want to be denied. And Gammons retweeted that with this comment: John is right; they were not denied. Dodgers, Angels will soon learn. They were not denied, says Gammon. That sounds like Garrett Cole's a Yankee already. Yeah, it does. Doesn't it? Wow. I don't know if he, I don't know if that's what he meant to say, but that's what he said. Let me ask you this. Because the Yankees have not won since Joe Girardi was their uh, manager and um, changing his number because they wanted and uh, they, they added one to their World Series total. And and you and Bruce were doing a good job of recounting the the way teams win and then have to dial back whatever they're allowed to spend because that money doesn't play as well as it used to. So it was the, the Cubs and the Astros and the Red Sox. And now the nationals are having to choose between like you, they can have two, $300 million contracts, not three. They already got Scherzer, right? Or 200 million, $30 million a year contract. So is it, do fans need, is it fair to ask fans to, dial back their expectations to expect no dynasty the way Cub fans expected a dynasty. You're going to get one title and like it, Smalls. Hmm. I'm not Smalls, but... In terms of just overall organizations? If Yeah, are you are you now having to come to the practicality as such? You, you were allowed as a Cub fan in 2016 to say, to believe this was a dynasty because they were young and good and look what they, they achieved... Everything seemed a year early when they did everything, yeah. when they when they won it. First, when they when they got to the NLCS and, and all of a sudden they killed the Cardinals and they that now it's now it's a World Series. And then and you said this could be the dynasty. The window of the window is now. And mm. and it wasn't. And then Tom Ricketts is saying you can't spend the same dollar twice. And as you guys pointed out, all the the big money is now being dialed back. Is it? Is there's a practicality of that that spending that big money and hoping it happens once? Yeah, you really only once have going to have to be enough. Yeah, well, you really only have one or two chances. Is that fair to ask fans? That? Should yeah. fans should fans expect one and be grateful for it? I think one is pretty great. To get one is pretty great. And then hopefully you're contending for another couple of years around there, and you might get lucky and get back. The Astros got one and got back at least. Well, right? they, they cheat. We don't want to have the depths of their misogyny and cheating are despicable. But the Red Sox were Theo's Red Sox mm-hmm. and Charrington's Red Sox were a good example of, of the if the if the foundation is strong and you make the right moves, then suddenly. What was it? Three and nine years? Is that way it turned out? Yeah, three and, three and eleven years. Well, three and 12? the reason that happened. Oh four, oh nine, oh four, oh seven. Mm-hmm. The reason that happened is also the reason that the Nationals uh, thrived post Bryce Harper. It's the reason that the Dodgers are still in great shape. What's that? And it's the reason that the Cubs are not in great shape, mm-hmm. and that's because. Drafting and developing your own cheap labor is gold. Yep, that's true. Is the number one asset in baseball, you know, especially when it's pitching. Uh, well, I well, but whichever case, it is, whichever it is. Yeah. I mean, if you are, if you're the Na- the Nationals, Bryce Harper was theirs. I know it's the number one pick in the draft. Steven Strasburg was theirs, number one pick in the draft. But then after that, uh, Anthony Rendon was theirs. Uh, Juan Soto is theirs. Victor Robles is theirs. You know, cheap. Cheap, cheap studs. And when you're the Red Sox, 
they drafted Pedroia, and they drafted Jacoby Ellsbury, and then they drafted Mookie Betts, and they drafted Jackie Bradley, and they signed Xander Bogarts, and it's just like one after another after another of cheap labor up until those guys get paid, and then you add in. The Dodgers are still loaded with, with their young, cheap talent. They've got guys still Verdugo and Gavin Lux has barely played and stuff like that. And meanwhile, the Cubs completely crapped the bed in terms of drafting over the last six years. Absolute disaster, which is why they have mistake. Number one was what? What was their greatest failure? Uh, Pitching uh, or was uh, it? It's, it was, I'll take anybody. I'll take anybody. I mean, look, it, well, you uh, can't say Bryant was a failure. No. Okay, Brian, not a failure. Schwarber, not a failure. What else you got from the last six years? Yeah, Literally. Almora, the first draft choice was, some people were talking about him like he was going to be Jonathan Taves. No, and in the draft since then, um, you've got, I mean, Nico Horner just made the bigs. But other than that, you're talking about James Norwood. You're talking about Ian Happ. These are the totality. I mean, really, I think those two guys is it from their own drafts. Okay, That's but, it. but but they use wait no, no wait, let's back up. So then, if Dylan you fail Cease, on the money, Dylan Cease made the majors. Uh-huh. He was you you use those draft choices as chips, yes, as well as Absolutely. on your roster, however you're doing it, and you want them to go for it. I'm in favor of going yes. for it, and I liked the Quintana but, but, deal. But you asked me about the money and constructing a roster yeah. and how how you can spend, and when you use those guys as trade chips, then you bring in the salary of whatever you're trading for. That's true, as opposed to using those guys who are making five hundred grand which allows you to do whatever the hell else you want to stay under the competitive balance tax. Okay. So it's like not having those guys and using those guys. And look at and I know the Astros cheat, but you're Don Alvarez this year for nothing. Mm-hmm. You did no money at all for your Don Alvarez. Other guys, they haven't paid Carlos Correa yet. You know, they haven't paid some of those guys yet. They, they gave Bregman an extension, but it was a manageable one because he was theirs and their own draft, their own draft pick. It's just if you have a steady flow of your own guys who don't make nothing, what, you, then your window does, is bigger than just one year. Do you think the cheating scandal affects teams signing Astros free agents? How old do they hit when someone's not banging a bucket? Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, yeah, okay. All no. right, we'll take a break. We come back um, more crap. That's what we do. Saturday suckage. <laughs> This stuff was really good, so we have to balance it out with more crap. <laughs> oh, I, let, please. Can you provide some crap? Oh, yeah. I got crap. Excellent. I got, I got enough for both of us. Rosa Moment <laughs> Spiegel, Chicago Sports Radio 670, The Score. This hour on The Score is brought to you by Exergen Temporal Scanner. Experts are predicting a brutal cold and flu season. The number one flu symptom is fever. So use a thermometer. I believe it's pronounced. Proven accurate by more than 80 clinical studies. Yes, doctor. We can't always predict the flu season, but we can always prepare for it with the Exergen Temporal Scanner. It's a thermometer and a good one. Uh, we will be on till 2.30. Uh, bonus suckage today as we take it to 2.30 leading up to the SEC Championship game to be heard on these very airwaves. 670, the score. Uh, next half hour, I will indulge. I ask you to indulge me as I tell a wonderful, it's a hockey story, but it's just so much more than that. Hockey, music, just some great stuff. A Ooh, wonderful, wonderful story that, that takes me back to my, my hockey youth and being a Kings fan as well as a Bruins fan um, leading up to that, uh, leading up to the SEC championship game. The, um, I bring you this bit of nonsense. So last night the Bucks are hosting the Clippers. Okay. Mike, you're thinking, okay, maybe this uh, NBA Finals preview, right? So the could Clip- be. Clippers go in there and they lose 119 to 91, which also could be an NBA Finals thing. So Giannis goes for 27 and 11, and it turns out it was his birthday yesterday. Giannis? Giannis's birthday. Did not know that. Well, Doc Rivers did. So this is Doc Rivers after the game. It was Giannis's birthday, and we searched all over the city for a gift, and we couldn't find one, so we gave him this one. That's all I could come up with. That's the best I got because we were awful. That's just great. Doc is so on it. I love Doc. The one I I love the idea that he told me the way his parents punished him. He was bad in school one day, yeah, and he was like ten, 
And the way they punished him was this. He couldn't go to the Proviso East, Proviso West game. That was it. Oh, They said, you can't go. That was it. No, you can't go. That must have hurt. He, it's still to this day. Yeah. He's talking about it. He remembers the pain of that when I talked about what kind of parents did you Oh, they were strict. Let me tell you how strict they were when I asked him about that. And that was the answer I got. That's awesome. Love Doc Rivers. Can I give you a quick basketball nugget? You can give me a slow basketball nugget. Jimmy Butler of the Miami Heat last night. I'll, uh, I'll send out the video here. He pulls up and hits a three with like a minute left to go, putting the heat up eight as they're pulling away from the Wizards. And as he's walking back to the bench, he looks at his teammates on the bench and screams, I'm a bad mother. Boop, boop. That's him. I'm sorry. That's he says, Jimmy. I'm a bad mother. Boop, boop. I'm sorry. I am just going back and screaming that. How Jimmy is that? Would Jimmy have called? Oh, would, would Jimmy have waved off the timeout from? From Jim Boylan yesterday. Yes. Oh, yes. Jimmy, can you, Jimmy, can you do that? Jimmy would have. Uh, Jimmy would have waved off Jim Boylan during the time during the timeout. That's right. He would have been one of the guys. The first ones not shaking hands with him or giving him a hug. Uh-huh. You you referenced that earlier yes. when talking about the times where Jim's looking for a friend and he's like high fiving himself. Uh-huh. I love these things. We we those of us who read love these things. So the 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 most amusing places to find things is usually the corrections section of a newspaper ask your ki- kids ask your parents what a newspaper is or in the obits and i have one of each so here from the financial times very highbrow publication okay here's a correction an earlier version of this article in korea incorrectly stated that the salt lake tribune has a full-time jazz reporter meaning lowercase jazz it, in fact, has two reporters who cover the Utah Jazz, the local basketball team. This has now been corrected. The Financial Times did not know the name of the Utah Jazz basketball team. <laughs> and this is a really joyful we – we come across these in sports after a while. It's a death notice. So the obit section, John J. Ford. You know, there's a picture that the name is sort of in bold type. And then the picture, John J. Ford, and here is the death notice. Age 86 of Plymouth. This is from Minnesota. Of Plymouth, Minnesota, passed away surrounded by his family on December 2nd after the Vikings allowed 17 unanswered points. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. All right, that's it. I wanted to share that. I just love the whole idea of that. All right, he's Matt Spiegel. I'm Steve Rosenblum. We have a half hour to go. We'll share with you that about um, a hockey story that's uh, fork check, back check, paycheck, name check. Hmm. And that's awesome. And and uh, if we have time, I want to get to a, a football thing. I realized that an old saying that used to have its place on the score was just really so horribly out of whack. And and what it was was like a really bad version of analytics. It was a really bad precursor to football analytics. All right, my curiosity is peaked. Excellent. We'll get to that in the next half hour. Rosenblum and Spiegel, Saturday, Suck it, Chicago Sports Radio, 670 The Score. I should have asked for some Welcome and welcome back. Rosenblum and Spiegel, Saturday Suckage, bonus Suckage. Take you to 230 SEC Championship game coming up on these very airwaves. 670 the score. And the uh, next half hour, uh, indulge me for a moment. We'll Please. continue on. Yes. Um, two, two people I, I know and respect. Eric DeHatchek, maybe the greatest hockey reporter ever. And Lisa Dillman, um, longtime friend. Uh, right for the athletic cover hockey. Lisa, Lisa's dad, Dick Dillman, used to be the um, PR director in Minnesota, the North Stars. Okay. He is so good, was so good at his job. He set the standard. They named the award after him. That the best, the the PR team devoted voted the best each year gets the Dick Dillman Award. That's Lisa's dad. So, anyways. Going back, to, they wrote, they combined on a story today, and you brought up Casa Vega. The interview took place at Casa Vega, the restaurant in L.A. in Studio City. Okay. Mexican restaurant, where in Quentin Tarantino's latest movie, Leo and Brad have a drink. Yeah, it's, well, it's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and yeah, it's towards the end. 
they uh, decide they're going to end their friendship. So the only way that two grown men can end their friendship is if you go out and get blind drunk together. That's, and that's a place to do it. In Casa Vega, it, was, it, it, it has been a place for many touchstones. This one involved a guy named Gene Carr, part of my Los Angeles Kings youth. He was the fastest player in the league, not named Bobby Orr. He was taken in the 70 draft, the draft that started with Guy Lafleur, then Marcel Dion, and Gene Carr went forth. Flowing blonde hair. If D. Snyder played hockey, this is <laughs> what he would look like. And he played on the Kings, my Kings, growing up in L.A., among the, the players you could, you, you had reason to root for, not just, I mean, I was a Bruins fan. The second game I ever saw was Bobby Orr. Phil Esposito, Derek Sanderson, and the Big Bad Bruins. They could outskate you, they would outscore you, and they would outslug you. But the Kings were the home team. They were my team. This, Gene Carr skated online, and the flowing blonde hair, and he skated online with Mike Murphy and Tommy Williams, all three former Rangers. But, and two of them part of the score's broadcast lineup in the <laughs> That's 90s. Right. That's Mike true. Murphy and Tommy Williams. Unbelievably named. My God. And they were, because they were former Rangers, this was in L.A., this was known as the off-Broadway line. When they back when he used to name lines. So he's doing, Gene Carr's doing this interview. He's a man of many in, many surgeries and many more to go. And he was not any kind of record setter. He played for the... The Kings, the Rangers, the Kings, the Blues, and that was pretty much it. He's wearing a shirt that says Hockey 5150. May mean something to you music people. Got tattoos all over his over his arms. But, again, this is back in a time when nobody wore helmets. Stan Mikita was the only one wearing a helmet. So he's been at he's, – he's being interviewed at Casa Vega, and he's talking about – his the beginning of his hockey life in Southern California when he was traded to the Kings. He said, I said, he was asked about a, a you know, what, it, what kept him busy off the ice, whatever. So he says, and this is the early 70s, I said, there's a group I like called the Eagles. He looked at me and said, the Eagles? Meaning he the reporter. And I said, yeah, I love the Eagles. About a week later, I went into the rink, and in my stall there was this brown package. It was addressed to Gene Carr, care of the L.A. Kings. On the top left, it had the return address, Eagles, Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> My first thought was, why the hell are the Philadelphia Eagles trying to get a hold of me? Swear to God, because I was thinking sports. So I open up the package thinking, what the hell is this? And inside, it's all of the Eagles albums, everyone that had come out to that point, and the note says, hey, Gene, if you love my music as much as I love watching you play, then we have to meet. And there was a telephone number underneath. That's how I met Glenn Fry, this hockey player. And hockey was like seventh in a in the of the four sports in LA. Hockey was seventh. Here's and here's a hockey player getting Glenn Fry's number. So the Eagles had just released on the border, and they broke through with one of these nights. And in 1976, they released the most successful album, Hotel California. Track number two is co-written by Fry, Don Henley, J.D. Souther. It was entitled New Kid in Town. And it's said to be about Gene Carr. Uh, No way. Glenn Fry used that phrase when talking to him about going to New York, going to L.A. Hey, you're the new kid in town. It's about a hockey player? Well, Gene Carr denies it. He says, if you listen to the whole song, this is a quote from the story, from, from the athletic, he says, I, it wasn't for me because I don't believe Glenn and I used to talk. Glenn and I used to talk all the time. And, and it's like the song from the 70s, meaning Carly Simon's You're So Vain, where mm. she never tells anybody who it's about either. Everybody thinks they Warren know, Baby. but they never really. Sh- Actually, it was. It wasn't, right? She said it was David Geffen. Oh, that's she right, David paid, Geffen. Somebody paid enough money. So anyways, New Kid in Town resounds, not because it wasn't about Glenn Fry or uh, Glenn, Gene Carr. But there was a new kid in town. 47 years after he came into the, went to St. Louis, he finds out he has a daughter he never knew about. Her name is Tracy Tooley. She lives and works in Madison. She is a Blackhawks fan, this Tracy Tooley. This is Gene Carr's daughter? Well, the one he didn't know about. Okay. She grew up in Wisconsin. At the age of 12, learned that the man she believed was her biological father probably wasn't. Instead, 
Her father might have been a man who was a player with the St. Louis Blues, had a short relationship with a woman who'd be their mother, and she is, she is telling The Athletic this at a restaurant in Middleton, Wisconsin. She didn't learn over the uncertainty until her mother and her mother, her mother and her aunt got into an argument. This is a quote from Tracy Tooley. My mom's sister was like, either you tell her or I'm going to. So then my mom told me, your dad is not your dad. Your dad is Gene Carr. He played for the Blues and went to the Rangers. And then I don't know where he went after that. I'm like 12. I'm like, okay, whatever. You're a kid. I blew it off. She's a Hawks fan, as it turns out, this Tracy Tooley. Oh, yeah, she says, in the, I'm a Dylan. Dylan Strome is my man. So they met. They they traded. They had DNA tests. This is his daughter. Oh my God! She was an Eagles fan before she knew who her dad was, and so she says, even when my dad hears me, we can drop music quotes in the conversation. He'll be like, "You're too young for that." No, I'm not. He said, "How do you even know what that is?" He'll say, "We just do that." And oh my God, when he started talking about the Eagles, I just about died. Says this woman who is his daughter. I'm like. Glenn Fry could have been my uncle. It could have been <laughs> Uncle Glenn. God, could you imagine? So during his time, he hung out with musicians because of Glenn Fry. During his time in L.A., Glenn and I had become friends. If he wasn't playing and I wasn't playing, playing we were hanging out. We used to go to a place right across from Paramount called Lucy's El Adobe back when Lucy was alive. Did you ever go to El Adobe? No. It was a, it was a famous trafficked by the people you would expect, these musicians. One of Glenn Fry's good friends was Bob Seeger. Fry grew up in Detroit and played in Seeger's band early in, the, in his career before moving to L.A. and starting the Eagles. They're in a bar together. Carr noticed that Seeger would always write notes to himself on cocktail napkins. He would fill his thoughts and observations on, nap, on napkins. One night, they're at Lucy's. I'm like, Bob, what are you writing there? Bob Seeger says, hey, man, every time I come to Hollywood, it's like we have such a great time and everything. It's just so beautiful here. Seeger was writing down the lyrics to Hollywood Nights. That's what those napkins became. And then, meeting the Eagles, see, as long as he's eight, he's, he's name-checking here. This is, what, this is one of the best things about it. Because the Eagles kept company with Linda Ronstadt. Jackson Brown well, Linda Ron- was a songwriter. The Eagles were Linda Ronstadt's backup band right. at and first. Jackson Brown and gave them the... Uh, because Glenn Fry wrote 17 words. It's a girl, my lord, in a flatbed Ford, slowing down to take a look at me. Mm-hmm. And that was that. And so <clears throat> he's at a party. He, Glenn Fry, and and Gene Carr, and they're talking to Eddie Van Halen. So we're, we're yakking, Gene Carr says. And Eddie sees my T-shirt, like the one he's wearing now. And it says, what the hell is hockey 5150? Hmm. Eddie Van Halen asking. I said, well, a good friend of mine is a highway with a highway patrol. And when they get a call when it's 5150, that's the code that they're dealing with a crazy person. So, Gene Carr continues, how perfect is hockey 5150? And Eddie Van Halen goes, can I use that? I go, sure, I don't care. So you go to the internet. You go to Eddie Van Halen's sound studio, and it's 5150. <laughs> That's what he calls it. So, so this, I, I love stories behind songs. One night, they're hanging out. Glenn Fry, Gene Carr, Bob Seger. It's a Van Halen album, too, 5150. And now you know a, what it means. A Van Hagar album. The Chippies handling a crazy person. So the three of them are hanging out. Bob Seger, Glenn Fry, and Gene Carr. It's midnight, summertime. Gene Carr is telling the story. I never did stupid things in the winter because I couldn't. We were playing. We go back to Glenn's, and he's having trouble with the song. So we smoked a joint, had a couple of beers, started shooting tequila about 3 or 4 in the morning. I think we're pretty drunk at this time. I can't remember the name of the tequila, but it was really smooth. We go into his backyard, and I say, Glenn, the sun's coming up. And Glenn goes, holy bleep, Gino, that's it. And that's how you got the start of Tequila Sunrise. That's where that song came from. This is so you. And I, but this, I is love- like, this is like seven Eagles songs, uh, a California and it's uh, hockey. police code, and hockey. And All living more, together. One more part of this. The King's okay. owner at the time. Does this tie back to Trader Joe's? <laughs> <laughs> Somehow. See, that would be perfect. <laughs> 
Okay, the king's owner at the time, Lakers owner, and owned the forum, right? Jack Kent Cook. Exactly right. Thank you very much. Cheap. Also owned the Redskins. Cheap Jack Kent Cook. Mm-hmm. So Gene Carr is going to have to negotiate a contract with Jack Kent Cook. He didn't have an agent. So Glenn Fry of the Eagles says, here, try my guy Irving Azoff. Now, he was a musical genius, the impresario, right? Yeah. Controlled the Eagles. I wouldn't say musical genius, business genius. Okay, the impresario. Yeah. He represented the Eagles. He represented a lot of people. So Gene Carr's telling this story. Glenn said, why don't you have Irving do your contract? He's one of the best. He never managed any athletes ever, Gene Carr says. I was the only one he managed. This is a hockey player talking to the Eagles manager. So Gene Carr continues, and he did it once, and that's all I needed. He went into Jack Kent Cook's office. Irving knew him because the Eagles played there in his building. I think he called him and said, I'm here to negotiate Gene's contract. This is his base salary that he needs. That's what Irving told me, Gene Carr says. And Jack Kent Cook looks at the number and says, there's no way he's getting that. Irving Azoff looks at Jack and says, Jack, either you give him that money or the Eagles will never play here again. (laughs) And Gene Carr got his money. And he needs surgery, needs more surgery. He's got a daughter in Wisconsin that he just found out about it. I love this story. Yeah, this that, is part that's, of my youth everything. and part of the Eagles and part of it's just and hockey. And it's just so great. 5150. Is there something for everybody? <laughs> so awesome. thank you for indulging me. I wanted to share this. This is part of my, my hockey youth and and your turn. Uh, t- I, I, what, how, where do I go after that? That's tremendous. I just wanted to share. Thank you for listening and yeah, indulging me. Absolutely. And that's, uh, you had stuff. That's you beautiful. Stuff. We're here until 2.30 mm-hmm. or 2.24. Yeah, the SEC championship game is coming up right here on, uh, on the score as soon as we're done because it is a college football championship day. With but games before, all over the place. But before we get to that, yeah. you, you had something on the score. Oh, you, you know what it was? Here, here's what it was. I was sitting there watching the game the other night, and I was remembering this. Maybe you remember this Which quote. Which game? The Bears and the Cowboys. Bears. When the Bears just dominated the Cowboys. And I had as much fun watching a Bears game as I have since what? Well, I guess last year against Tampa in the first half when... When Mitchie, Mitchie looked great. Six TD Mitch. Uh-huh. But this, I mean, this was crazy fun uh, to watch this game the other night. Um, but during it, I was recalling something that used to get brought up in the days, in the 90s and, and the aughts around here. And it would get brought up uh, sometimes by the show I was producing, McNeil and Boars, or sometimes by some of their guests or whatever. And our old pal Dougie Buffon would bring it up. And this was when people were really talking about how the run game was going away. They're like, you know, it's you really, and it's still this, it's the same conversation that goes on. You know, there's too much passing in the game, but the, the old heads like conservative run the ball. Old heads were still locked and loaded on this idea that you needed to run it a certain amount of times Mm -hmm. in order to win. And the phrase that used to be like, you know, when you throw the ball and I don't know who said it first, but when you throw the ball, Two out of the three things that happen are bad. Three things that can happen, two of them are bad. I, I've right, always you remember seen this? that attributed to Woody Hayes. Is, is it, oh, maybe it was Woody Hayes. Yes. That's Can great. We, so you throw the ball, two out of the three things that can happen are bad. Yeah. I remember that being thrown in my face all the time. And, of course, that means, one, it could be intercepted. Two, it could be incomplete. Mm-hmm. And the third one is that you complete it. And I realized that is some really, really bad football analytics. <laughs> that... <laughs> That is that was the basic. That was that was the hieroglyphics on the wall. Sixty seven. Okay, we have three things. Uh-huh. Yeah. Got three things there. percent and the two prob- of them. The probabilities. Yeah, but you got to admit that's a that's a okay. It's but, on an abacus, but it's a start. No, it, but think of the things that it doesn't take into account. Okay, I'm I'm, what, I'm what, here for you. All right, what it doesn't take into account is that a an incompletion is not a deal breaker necessarily. If it's first down or second unless down. Unless it's third down. Sure, okay. But you know, incompletion on first or second down is not the same as an incompletion on third down uh-huh. or fourth down, of uh-huh. course. Right? So that's one thing. Two, um, the pass that is completed might go for 70 yards and a touchdown. Mm-hmm. Or it could go for seven yards or it could go for 20 yards or 30 yards. Like there's gradations in there. If we're going to talk about the math, the chance of getting a 10 to 15 yard play or wait for it, a possible touchdown on a big play, (laughs) 
outweighs what is this thing you call it, touch uh, right it outweighs the possible like the bad parts uh-huh. of an incompletion like i mean there's so many what we know now about how we use very simple math that some people are still scared by but really is just math and analytics is just you know quantifiable scouting or math or that kind of thing it's like but it, what used to stand, especially for football analytics, is that from Woody Hayes. And people used to say, yep, he was brilliant. Sure was. See, that's why I got to run the ball, because two out of three things that happened are bad. Are bad. See? But that Which was is the start of... Hard, it's horrific analytics. And... It's terrible. And then came football perspective, and now you know the rest of the story. Okay, I, I'm glad you got that. <laughs> it just, it just killed was, me. At what point, what prompted you to think of that? Yeah. What what prompted you what, to think how of that? Did that come up? Yeah, how did that come up when it was, you know, a yeah, uh, yeah. and a texture brings up a six three zero texture. How about a sack? Oh yes, sure, sure. So there's more. Woody Hayes couldn't count. Okay, well, yeah, oh, sure. You a count sack. to one, like one punch. Right, of a player a, would injure. Career. He's talking about throwing the ball out there. Right. Incomplete pass could also get the pass interference flag. That is correct. You could draw a flag. Um, you could have an, an interception. That was one of the three. But yeah, sack on a drop back, or the quarterback could scramble and run. I mean, there's a, there's so many so many different things. Um, and now, thankfully, we have some really good basic analytic sites like Football Outsiders or Pro Football Focus and stuff like that. Um, Chris Collinsworth brilliantly got in on Pro Football Focus, huh? Because mm-hmm. so now he's like listed as the CEO or whatever the hell, or COO or whatever the hell he's listed as. It's a great as. hood ornament. Oh, it's a great hood ornament. Great. And then he's on NFL Network once or twice a week and always is, is, is repping Pro Football Focus. And he said the things I was talking about earlier, the when they count down the 100, he's on that that the hundred best players yeah. the panel he's there too yeah he's he's quite prominent it's yeah. a very he, he said something savvy um, move. said something last week that i carried into my thursday night uh, game preparations and and conversations which was that it took him a lifetime of football to wrap his head around the fact that even if you don't run the ball well play action is effective that even if you don't run it well Every every run has a is a positive has a positive effect because you you give the other team something to think about. Mm. You tire them out. You set up play action. Yes, there are many things that spring from it, and that's always what Hub was going crazy. I mean, Hub specifically in these airwaves, he, he whether he was one of the old heads, but he he didn't say you know there you run because two of the three things. Could happen he didn't or bad. go to Woody Hayes he Analytics. Was making the point that so much springs out of that that they have to respect it. Yes. And especially a guy like David Montgomery, we're starting to see we've seen more examples of his it, one one guy won't bring him down. The first hit might not bring him down. Uh-huh. He's he's forcing yardage. He's forcing you to respect that. He's gonna make Mitch in the passing game better. He may even make Matt Nagy better. As a play caller. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing. When you, when you start realizing that you need to watch the lines and you watch, you know, that, that's where the flow right. of, uh, of the game is really taking place. And so when the line, the defensive line, believes you might run, then things pop open like that little screen pass to J.P. Holtz or a little, mm-hmm. a, a little bootleg where Mitch gets out of the pocket or now the straight-up RPO where – Mitch will keep and run for a 22-yard touchdown. Do you realize if we were in Dallas how we would be ripping them for their awful self-scouting? Because the, the, the Bears basically said that play was there all week. We knew what the defensive end was going to do, mm. talk, especially Mitch's touchdown, Trubisky's touchdown run. Yeah. That play was there. We knew what they were going to do. And, and the one time they really didn't they, – they watched the, you watched the linebacker. We, we talked about the Anthony Miller play. But – they were so predictable, just as Matt Nagy was predictable and did a lousy job of self-scouting. And mm-hmm. then they finally went back to using the quarterback they always had. You always just click your heels to get the three <laughs> it times. Was always right there. It was always right there for you. The answer was always right there. I think that it's perfect to close the show with this. Somebody tweeted out, "Yeah, who let New Jersey have a Twitter on Twitter.com? And New Jersey, when the governor's office answered, your mom. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like the Jersey I know. That's it. I knew you'd like that. We want to thank Chef for producing this part of it. Zach Withers for the first part. 
We want to thank David Schuster, Mark Grody, Jim Margallis of Sox Machine. I thank everyone who listened. Nobody called. We don't want you to call. We tolerate you listening to us, as it were. And all of my stories about the Eagles brought it all together in hockey. SEC game coming up next on The Score. It wouldn't have been possible if we weren't here to be told how much we suck. So kudos to you guys for sucking as bad as we do. Oh, yes. Wait a minute, Mr. Post. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, yeah. That's it. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 